Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen continues being interviewed by guest host, former Chaddock board member Michelle Robison, as an introduction to Karen's next Attachment Theory in Action miniseries, Family Therapy and Attachment Theory. The next set of interviews with Dr. Peter Frankel release on Tuesday, October 4th. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. I'm here with one of my my besties in everything, one of my favorite professional colleagues, one of my dearest and most important friends, um, Michelle Robison. Um, she is, we're, we're turning, turning the tables here and Michelle is being a guest interviewer, interviewing me about my history with um, family therapy and the um, ideas that also apply to attachment theory. Um, in this regard. So, um, Michelle, um, thanks for being here with us again. Um, I will mention again, you're a former long-term Chaddock employee, now working in California, and you are on the board of the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. And I don't know if there's anything else you want to add for listeners before we get going with the rest of our conversation. Just that it's my pleasure to be here once again. And as always, I love talking about these concepts with you and spending time with you and and um, anything that I can uh, do to help people along in their journey. Um, you were such a formidable uh, source of information and knowledge for myself as I also, you know, was long, walking along this path with you. And um, it's it's wonderful to be able to go back and reflect on on our journey together and all of the um, things that led to, you know, where we are today. And I, I think it just lends us to really be um, recognizing that it, it, it's a process, right? This, this is not something that just happens overnight. And for new clinicians, it's a passion of ours to, to share that with them and recognize that, you know, this is, this is not a, something that you just, you know, learn one thing and it, and, and it stops, you know, this is lifelong learning at its finest. And so happy to be here with you, Karen, and, you know, just getting right back into things with you. You know, we were talking about your class that you took at Menninger and um, the importance of recognizing uh, family systems and how you can't just work with a child, you know, alone and that you have to look at the entire system. And I want to give you the opportunity to talk about what were some of the most important concepts that you've found that you applied to your work um, uh, at Chaddock and, and what, what were some of those things that, that helped you um, impact your uh, practice the most after learning about this? Yeah, yes, yeah, really great question. Um, so, you know, the Menier Clinic Program, although we learned about different family systems theory, once again, the emphasis was on Bowen systems theory. And I just find that interesting. It's like this Bowen systems theory is like following me. <laughs> and, um, and I think that it really overlaps well with attachment theory. I felt like it was, a, um, th there was nothing inconsistent in attachment theory and Bowen systems theory for me, which I loved. And I do think that 
John Bowlby was one of the first family therapists. He was saying this, we're looking at a relationship between a parent and child. We're looking relational at the parent, the caregiver. He called it a caregiver system. You know, he also talked about um, intergenerational transmission, which is actually one of a, a, is a big Bowen concept, actually, intergenerational transmission. And, um, you know, now the science has proven all that to be true, that there is an intergenerational transmission of attachment patterning. And there's, you know, now we're even learning there's an intergenerational transmission of trauma. We're learning that um, experiences change our genes and how they're expressed. And so I really feel like, you know, these kinds of intergenerational thinking were ahead of their time in terms of understanding that, it, again, it's not just this person in front of you. You know, a big thing, a, a phrase that I've heard, read Harriet Lerner use and, and I've used myself and heard in my training is, there are generations of people in your family who have done things a certain way and that is in your bones. Wow. So I think that is a huge concept that, you know, even if we just take women or mothering, there are generations of influence of how we mother, of how we're females in this system. Um, you know, even just taking it bigger, you know, Michelle, you are from a Dutch uh, family on both sides, you know, so in, there are things in your bones about being Dutch that are transmitted in your family system. And I know that we've talked about some of that. And so I think that that is one concept that I would always be thinking about. And, and when we say it's in your bones, we mean that these are automatic moves that you're conditioned to do. And, you know, maybe now we would someday we'll be able to say, oh my gosh, it's in your genes. You know, maybe that would have been a better way, you know, to say it's in your bones. But I, I remember learning that and, and thinking about that in, in, the, in the way that I function and think, beginning to think about that um, with kids and families that I was working with. So whether it was a kid, you know, adopted from Russia who had like a whole different, um, family systems experience, orphanage experience, whatever, um, coming into this other system that for generations has done things in a certain way, perhaps in terms of parenting by by one parent or the other, and just really thinking about that. And, and I think that phrase that is in your bones gives it the proper respect. Like this can't be taken lightly. This is a powerful force inside of us that we're contending with if we want to make changes that are different than what was passed down. So you're suggesting that these are things that children can't necessarily control. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And I mean, the grown-ups are having a hard enough time trying to control some of these things. Um, so, so that, you know, was was one thing that I really started to, to keep in mind, both in family systems and in cultures. You know, we, um, I know you and I had a case where we worked with a child from Russia and he would, you know, we're prizing this idea of being vulnerable and being open and telling us your feelings and he's like not talking to us and he's literally literally in this very primacy kind of way would beat his chest 
and stick it out. And I look at the culture he came from and some of the experiences historically that have happened there. And um, yeah, like being super vulnerable about your feelings and sharing your deepest, darkest secrets, like not a prized thing in his lineage. <laughs> not not a smart move, you know? Fascinating. It's so yeah. fascinating when you bring it into the context of it being in your bones, because I think if we don't respect that, we could easily go along with and probably did until we became more knowledgeable about that, you know, a, a p- further pathologizing the child. Right, not right. To talk like to he's us. resistant. He's, right. We got to like, um, he's um, putting up, you know, defensive strategies from all this trauma. He He's not making progress. He, he's not willing to be vulnerable. Yeah, you're right. Like, it, certain places people are from, it's not a good idea to be vulnerable. Um, you know, um, obviously. Yeah. And I think, you know, in his case, as you're describing also then um, can easily dismiss that and then join with parents in frustration as opposed to helping them learn mm-hmm. about how this in your bones concept could be impacting his behavior and thus moving us in a completely different direction. And so mm-hmm. I think it's so important to recognize that. Yes. yes. You know, how did it, how else did these concepts change your practice in the way that you went through them? Yeah. So another way was that everybody's behavior influences everybody's behavior. So, um, you know, the original intent, you know, often when children are coming to therapy, the idea is help the child with their behavior. And um, one of the things that I began to realize was um, if I can get other people to change their behavior in the system, I'm going to have a big advantage because if everybody starts tweaking, the child has to change. You know, we talk about this a lot in the idea of the dance, you know, Harriet Lerner's first book, The Dance of Anger, and how, you know, we're, we're in this dance. And if you change the steps, the other person can't keep that same dance. So if this parent and child are in a dysfunctional tango um, and they we say hey change the steps to a waltz like let's see if that can work um, the child can't do the tango if the parents doing the waltz you know so um, we are um, changing a pattern by looking at the adults behavior and so I think one of the really important concepts from Bowen systems theory and systems theory in general is there's only one person we have the power to change. And frankly, it's even hard to change that person, which is ourselves with these things in our bones, (laughs) sometimes making us do things we don't want to do. And working with, and, and them often being children. Yes. Are the ones that are right in front of you. Right, right. And significant behavior issues. Yeah, so it was very much looking at um, being very honest with parents that I'm going to ask everyone to make changes. And um, there are changes that you can make that will increase the likelihood that your child will change. 
I'm not blaming you for your child's problems, but I am saying there are ways that you can change that will be the catalyst, will whatever, you know, metaphor I need to, to use will, will grease the skids, will increase the likelihood, you know, whatever I need to say about, um, you know, this idea of this dance, that if you change your steps, the child will have to change theirs. So that was a really, really big shift from, you know, the kid has these problems and we're, you know, this is the diagnosis and this is the therapy and this is the medication and let's see if we can reduce the symptoms. And again, holding on to that idea, you know, I'm not saying there's never like a biological basis for anything. I'm not saying that, but I am also saying from my systems training, somebody can become symptomatic for the family. Mm -hmm. And in that, yeah. and in that, go ahead. In well, that, you know, even when we were talking about, you know, those one of the the roles in the alcoholic family system that was identified was the scapegoat. And that's the child that's acting out, you know, having problems in school, maybe using substances themselves. And so everybody can focus on that scapegoat, you know, mom or dad wouldn't be drinking, they wouldn't be fighting, sister Susie would be doing better, but we're all like, you know, dealing with this kid when really there were other issues happening in the marriage um, and in other relationships that were influencing this child becoming symptomatic. It, it wasn't just all about that child. That child was in the scapegoat role while another child was in the hero role. I'm the perfect child. I'm the achiever. I'm the one that does everything right. I'm going to stay out of the way so mom and dad don't even have to worry about me. And speaking of that pattern, we've seen that at Chaddock, that a child would come to Chaddock and start really doing better. And then the superstar sibling that got straight A's and, you know, did really well and was really popular develops a severe eating disorder or the eating disorder comes to light. So when one child got better, the other one got symptomatic. So these are the kind of things that really um, we need to watch for, for and be aware of and look at everybody's contribution to what's happening in the family system. And I think when you bring people together that maybe aren't approaching it in that way, challenges with other with, with the way of looking at that do arise um, because it's easier to look at the child as only problem as opposed to having to look at the bigger system, right? I mean, they yes. don't want to look at, at maybe how some of these other behaviors are dysfunctional when really, you know, the, the, this other child is, is doing so much better on the outside. Um, another concept I know you've mentioned in the past and you've talked a lot about is this whole over-functioning, under-functioning concept. Yeah. And I know that was a big, um, big idea too, that really shaped a lot of your work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the idea of over-function and under-function is that, you know, we have a general tendency under stress. Well, let's first say, okay, let's back up a little bit. And Bowen talked a lot about anxiety in the family system. And one of the best things that the therapist can do is be a non-anxious presence in the midst of the family system. 
which that that takes a lot of work on ourselves to be that and to not get caught up in that because right the family system is always stronger than us so um and so you know being a non-anxious presence and looking at anxiety in the system and the more calm i can be perhaps we can lower the anxiety and they're not necessarily talking about anxiety like we diagnose it in the dsm um it's more like um strife and um uh, difficulty and uh, triangles which we'll talk about in a second but so um it was the over function under function idea and if people want to read the most beautiful examples of this i think are in harriet learner's book the dance of anger which you know i'll probably just like be mentioning her over and over as i have been um and she talks about a propensity to over function and then a partner will under function so you know maybe let's let's take a, a marriage or something and maybe one person they're the person that's always on top of things getting things done problem solving handling lots of the everyday tasks and the other person doesn't do as much of that is more kind of laid back and relaxed and you know it'll happen when it happens kind of thing and you know when there's not significant stress um that can be good like we we could say oh that's kind of complimentary you know they each help each other kind of balance the other um but under stress these can go to extreme. And so the person that over functions becomes like hyper responsible for everything, um, starts like really trying to control what everybody does, get everything done, very bossy, giving out orders. This is how it has to happen, um, running themselves ragged, trying to get everything done. And the under function person, under functioning person, and I want to point out right away, these are, there's no morality in this. These are it's just like preoccupied versus dismissing attachments two sides of the same coin it's just like a different presentation so the other person you know the more that person does that the more incompetent they become like next thing you know they're mostly on the couch eating chips watching netflix 24 7 because you know their tendency both of these things that started out like a nice balance get like completely out of balance. And so I that concept, I think, is really, really important. Um, we would often see this dynamic going on with parents in their marriage relationship and also in relation to the child that was with us. And, um, you know, if you're an overfunctioner and you want a the, the other person to kind of step up their game, you're going to have to let go of some of that and allow them to do some of that, which for most under functioner over functioners is really un, almost unbearable, like, <laughs> like to let go of some of that. But if they don't, they're just like, you know, they're continuing to to induce under functioning in someone. And that's just one way that that pattern can take place, you know, and you, also I'll throw in here that you could be totally different in your personal life than you are at work. Mm -hmm. So you could be like the big over functioner at work, but at home you under function. So, yeah, I think it's and, important that you point that out, that these patterns play themselves out in very different ways in different relationships yes and not just families right right yeah there's a whole 
books written on Bowen systems theory in organizations, because his idea was any system that's in place is going to be impacted by these patterns, you know, and another one, triangles. Um, and I think lots of family therapists talked about triangles, but Bowen systems theory, you know, defines it a lot. And, you know, we, we would see this in our work at Chadok Michelle, um, where, um, a parent would get so focused on the child that the marriage was then suffering. Um, and so, you know, this idea that I would hold in my mind is that a child can become a lightning rod for the difficulties in the couple. And so it all goes into the child. Like, it's almost like, and this could be true. I'm not saying this isn't true, but sometimes there's like, we would be in complete marital bliss, but my God, you try parenting a kid like this and all the stress and all the problems and, you know, the adoption and the treatment and the money and the therapist and the psychiatrist and the testing and the, oh my gosh, now they're here. And, you know, and, and there, there sometimes can be this idea that, um, you know, otherwise we'd be in marital bliss when the reality is there were difficulties in the marriage and being able to focus on the child allows them to not look at those things. And so that's what we mean about the child becoming a lightning rod for problems in the couple. And I will tell you what I've learned over the years is a child can get pretty sick if it means it'll keep their parents connected. And what was the catalyst to help make those changes happen? You mean with, with what? In regard to those changing those dynamics, how do you help move children out of that? So I had to um, really also consider it's a very delicate balance because you, when people come to us with significant, pro- I mean, not significant problems with their child, like nothing I said was untrue. Like who, who wouldn't be going bonkers when you're having a child that's having all of these difficulties and you're worried sick and you don't know how they're going to end up and you're, you've put all these resources in and you don't even know, you know, if you can finance any more help and what's going to happen. So there's no denying that. Um, but not but and it's an and (laughs) and there can also be things in the the marriage that are affecting that so what does that look like that looks like very gently trying to discuss some of that with parents and encouraging them to look at that relationship so sometimes it may mean recommending marital counseling sometimes it or relationship counseling you know whatever kind of partnership is there it it may mean individual therapy um for the parent but really needing to um look at what's going on with us as a couple because uh, so, so there could be like, there was this dynamic that was maybe not so healthy to begin with, but we can like avoid that and just focus on the child and not look at that. Okay, so that could be one thing. Um, but another thing could be, oh, like it was a pretty healthy relationship and the stress of this is causing it not to be. And the, 
what I see more there then is somehow the child emerges as like the third person in the relationship. And we have this like, it's like there's three peers mm. and they're all relating at the same level. The child's having the same level of power and authority and even more so in the in the family system. And so in those cases, I, I may have to say, look, like you guys, you need to do some stuff as a couple. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess date night sounds like a pathetic, tired recommendation, but somehow you need to let this child see see that that they that you guys are connected um and solid and if you're not you know then we need to figure that out um and then the child can move to being a child mm -hmm. because i think sometimes th there's this idea with kids that they have to be up at that level you know, they, they have to help keep this whole thing going because they're not confident in the parents relationship. Yeah. Right. So they're like sort of um, the opposite. So so instead of the kid under functioning, becoming symptomatic and having all of these issues, they start to over function. Right. Like they're they're like trying to take care of the whole thing. Um, and um, we we have seen that. So, man, Michelle, that concept. I, I could talk about, about a long time and I, and I just have. <laughs> well, and I guess, you know, as I'm thinking about it, and I know that question is a very big question, but I think what it really highlights is that as you move to unpack this, there are so many layers. This yes. is not a quick fix. This is no. not simple. No. And no. if you're in a, you know, wanting to do brief intervention, this is, this is oftentimes not something that can be done in a brief, in brief, yeah. sense, you know, and it's, it's a big family systems and relationships within that are big, big issues. And, um, it's not, it's not easy work. And I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were people, you know, Chloe Madonna's and, and different famous family therapists who were just like, you know, known for coming up with this intervention, like pers a paradoxical prescription of making someone do something that like so completely upset the system that um, it like was sort of catapulted into a, a better way of functioning. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily the norm. And um, yeah, and you know, just to finish up the triangle thing before we end here, another way that we have seen that um, many times in our work, Michelle, is um, one parent having this overdeveloped relationship with the, the child at the cost of the other parent forming a relationship with the child. Like, so a dynamic there would be, let's say, um, let's say mom is, you know, a real talkative extrovert person like this. And if the three of them are in the room, mom, dad, and child, mom does all the talking and it's difficult for her to stop for, you know, um, dad or the other mom or the other parent to speak, or even for the child, there's this, um, as they're pausing and waiting for the opportunity to relate to each other, um, the the talker like jumps in before they can do it and so we have sometimes had to prescribe well you know dad's gonna have a phone call with you know johnny and mom we don't want you on the phone call 
True. And, and we have to talk about what kind of support you're going to need to not be on that phone call because we know that you're going to be like jumping out of your skin to not be on that phone call. But as long as you're there intervening and, and filling the space, they can't find the space between each other. Such powerful work though, to give the opportunity for that relationship to blossom and find its feet. Because without that, the relationship just shrivels and doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't form. And so that's such a beautiful sentiment. And as I reflect back on those conversations with those parents, painful because they were so afraid that something wasn't going to go right. But in learning that, they were able to see that without that, things could actually grow. And I think that's the beauty of what you're describing and giving people hope and light and ability to move in different spaces and in different places. And and so I think, you know, Karen, all of these things that you've been talking about make so much common sense. Why is it so hard for us to carve out the time to do this? Um, That's a whole nother conversation, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to have this conversation and I'm grateful to the listeners out there that care about this little platform that I have where I can kind of carry the torch and say we have to keep these ideas alive. They're they're fading and it, we won't be able to do our best work without an awareness and an understanding of them is truly my belief. I think that is so true. And I'm just grateful to have been able to be a recipient of your processes and learning. And I hope the listeners can uh, just get a snippet of um, what is going on in that brain of yours and the constant, the constant uh, processes that you're, you're going through and thinking, and you think so carefully about things. And, and I think that the field is definitely um, benefiting from that. And I'm sure lo- your listeners benefit from it as well as they learn new concepts and learn about things that maybe they haven't heard about or thought about for a while. So I'm, I'm, it was my pleasure to be here with you today and um, I'll come back anytime you want me. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. For, we're uh, here with Michelle Robinson, Turning the Tables and um, I hope you enjoyed this kickoff series. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 